What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the AVPA podcast. Uh, we have a really good guest for you today, um, the one and only Jim Simmons. Jim, how are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. And yourself? I'm good. I'm good. So um, just to give you some background on myself, um, for our listeners, my name is Jaya Salusi. Um, I graduated from Princeton in 2012 and uh, now work at a company, a real estate developer called Tishman Spire. Um, and I've been here for about six months after graduating business school. Um, and in between Princeton and business school, um, Jim actually helped me uh, out a lot in terms of just figuring out what path to go down and eventually making the transition into real estate. So hopefully we can talk about that a little bit today. But more importantly, um, we have Jim Simmons on the line, who is a partner um, at Aries. Um, and Jim, do you want to give a brief introduction of yourself, and um, we can just jump in here? Sure, sure. Um, so I've been in um, real estate private equity for the past 16 years um, at essentially the same firm, but through different iterations thereof. Um, before that, um, I worked at an economic development agency. Prior to that, uh, I was on Wall Street, and then I started my career as an engineer at General Electric. So, as I say to my mother, I final, finally settled down after four choices, four chances after um, defining what my career would be. Got it. That's awesome. That's awesome. And for, so everybody knows, um, Jim is also a pretty integral part of um, the Black Princeton Alumni Association, um, ABPA. Um, and has definitely tremendously helped me out. So I remember, I don't even know if you remember this, but the first time we met um, was actually at Coming Black in, um, I believe it was 2015. Uh-huh. Um, Jim was kind of one of the people who spearheaded that charge. Um, a lot of the people from the class, uh, from the classes in the 80s came back and were pretty surprised to see how much the campus had changed. Um, and I remember Jim gave a good talk and I wanted to really work in real estate at the time. So I like after you gave your talk, I kind of ran up to you and said, hey, you know, my name's Jai Falusi. I've researched you, um, kind of seen the path you've gone down, really want to work in real estate, and here's this guy who I think might be a good connection for me. Um, and I mentioned his name, and you're like, oh, do you know him? And I was like, no, 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 um, but I'm hoping to meet him. And long story short, within actually – Probably the next week, um, Jim had kind of put me in touch with him via email. Had I had followed up with the guy, I met with the guy, and eventually um, this particular guy who Jim put me in touch with was able to plug me into an internship at a real estate developer, and that's kind of where my real estate um, path took off from there. Um, and I don't do you remember that, Jim, or not really? I, I remember meeting, and I remember. <laughs> Uh, connecting you, I wasn't aware that that worked out as well as it did. So I'm I'm actually glad that that sometimes the network works. <laughs> yeah, no, it did, it, it did, and I think one thing that I really appreciated, um, especially coming out of Princeton, was a lot of times you're thought you're thinking you're going to go in there to leverage a network that might be people who doesn't necessarily look like you. Um, and I think there's also a lot of strength within our own kind of black alumni community. So I was hoping um, if you had any stories um, along those lines. I know Brent Henry someone who who helped you out, um, if you could share those. Sure. Um, I, I've been extremely fortunate throughout my 
post-Princeton life in being able to follow in the footsteps of some fairly remarkable individuals um, who, uh, Brent being one of them and probably being the, the, the primary person who I would give credit uh, to my involvement with Princeton. I think my first five years out, I wasn't very involved. Uh, and after uh, a couple of conversations with him, um, he said, listen, you should really think about um, getting more involved with the university, uh, be thoughtful about how you do so, and here are the various and sundry ways that you can. Uh, and uh, I settled with uh, annual giving for a number of reasons. Um, one of the more important ones is that uh, the dollars that are raised by annual giving gives the university the ability to do things that it otherwise wouldn't be able to do, um, particularly as a lot of the Dow firm funds are slotted for specific uses. Got it. But he, he's just one of, of many, if not several, and I'm just going to mention a couple of people of color like Dennis Brownlee, John Rogers, Kim Goodwin, and Melody Hobson, who actually happens to be younger than me, but um, all have been helpful um, in directing my Princeton involvement. That's awesome. And um, from a young alumni like myself, I just first and foremost want to thank you guys for blazing that trail. And obviously people came before you and people will come after me. But you definitely have kind of inspired a lot of us to continue to give back and make that a priority. And just for context, do you mind letting our listeners know I know um, Brent Henry was a trustee for Princeton, but do you mind contextualizing what that actually meant in the context that he was in? Well, when we met, he actually was the father of, of uh, one of my best friends. Uh, okay, and that's how we met. Um, Adam Henry. Okay. Um, and, and so uh, through that, we would have conversations just about life. And we transition into talking about Princeton specifically. Uh, but he's currently the vice chair of the board. Uh, so, uh, and he's been a longstanding board member. So he has the purview of seeing how the, op- how the university operates on a daily um, and sort of top-down basis. And mm-hmm. uh, from that, uh, he's been... Uh, able to share some of how the university works with me. And I was uh, vetted for the board several years ago um, and based upon, I think, his uh, leadership and, you know, my tenure within the university community, um, you know, I was given the opportunity to be vetted and to become a candidate for the board several years ago. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um and just, I do want to shift gears a little bit because I think um, with some of the stuff that you do in real estate, uh, it's obviously very much appreciated. I know I referenced that you were a little bit of a, a godfather of sorts um, among the community. Um, just through my involvement with you in either real estate um, executive council or just hearing about you from peers that I've worked with, um, I don't want you to down. I know you're a modest guy, but you know you're a pretty important guy. So can you just let people know <laughs> what it means to be a partner um, at a real estate investment firm? What it, like, what does that mean? 
sure. First of all, I think my kids would probably disagree with that very important <laughs> statement. But yeah. um, we are so th- there are a subset of firms that you might call top tier real estate firms that are in various places in the ecosystem. Maybe in private equity, they may be maybe in development, they may be in brokerage, investment management, sales. Um, we happen to be in the private equity space, which simply means that we take institutional capital, which is insurance companies, pension funds, endowments, um, and foundations, and we invest them in real estate um, to generate a return on those dollars. Got it. And it's a it's a world that, quite frankly, I wasn't aware of until many years after graduating and um, I won't say that I fell into it but I was introduced to it um, somewhat accidentally as I was CEO of an economic development agency here in New York City and in that capacity I realized that to change the nature of a neighborhood you have to at least be able to affect change in real estate and ideally control real estate. Yeah. So once I left that role, um, I looked for positions and opportunities where I could do that. And um, Apollo Real Estate Advisors was the place that provided me with that opportunity. And over the years, um, I've employed sort of the business model of going into areas that had been disinvested in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, mm-hmm. reinvesting capital, um, and and really trying to bring assets that had been neglected just to a market standard. And, Got it. You know, that was the business model that um, was predicated on the depopulation of urban cores during mm-hmm. that period of time. Uh, which is now being repopulated. Mm-hmm. And I am the perfect example of a kid whose father commuted, actually both parents commuted, um, mm-hmm. my mother to Newark and my father to New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. And we grew up in central Jersey. And I'm sure that if they felt that there was the environment and the schools to go along with it, right. uh, that they would rather be closer to their jobs than further. Mm-hmm. And so I said, if I could change some of those neighborhoods for the better, such that people like them could stay today, mm-hmm. like myself, I live in Harlem and I raise my children in Harlem, oh, wow. um, <clears throat> that uh, you know those neighborhoods would be um, better for it at the end of the day. Got it. So just a quick side Side question: Are you are you a Knicks fan then, or because they're uh, they're not looking too good right now? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I am I am an I am a Knicks fan primarily because of my my good friend Steve Mills. Got it. Okay. But, uh, I grew up a Nets fan, so what you <laughs> and that's because the the town that I grew up in, yeah. um, when the Meadowlands was being built. They played their games at the Rutgers Athletic Center in Piscataway, New Jersey, which is one town over from where I grew up. Oh, wow. So okay. when I was in middle school, um, going up to high school, they played there, and we would go to we would go to those games, 
and those games were um those games were you know they left a mark on me seeing some of those guys so i've been a nets fan and when they moved to brooklyn i had season tickets the first few seasons so right um they aren't having the best run as we speak but they play hard <laughs> hey uh yeah i'm all in on the knicks and uh i'm a Stephen I'm a Smith fan so i uh i love his commentary he keeps it entertaining but i'm hoping they turn things pretty soon um but one thing you did say that i really wanted to underscore is that you know you work kind of in a private industry as an investor, um, but your goals and the day-to-day lives that you're affecting um, are for a a broader public interest and a public good. And I think a lot of times that's something that people may not understand or see about real estate, where a lot of the people who are, are in it, you know, may be after, you know, certain financial gains and things of that nature. Um, But there is a broader kind of, social agenda that it can fulfill if you have the right people in those seats. And one question I do have for you, I think a lot of times we talk about, you know, there's not a lot of diversity in the industry. There's not a lot of, um, you know, diversity in the upper echelons of the industry. And people kind of think of that almost as a disadvantage. But I actually want to ask you, I want to flip that. Like, what advantages do you have being a minority um in the real estate industry, which is predominantly dominated by um, a different group of people? <laughs> None is the answer to that. <laughs> if you want me to be honest about it. But no, listen, um, what, what I can say is that, um, and this goes to the whole concept of diversity, mm-hmm. Um I, by din of my life experiences, bring a different perspective to the table. Yes. So I am pretty confident that um, before I joined my firm, um, there was not a tremendous amount of thought given to, okay, um, we can invest in these particular areas and we can generate a return, and we can also positively affect these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I want to be clear, the first objective was generate a return and making money. We're in the business to make money. Got it. Um, but having the life experience and grown up where I did and living in Harlem, um, having invested my own personal money and buying a house. Mm -hmm. Um, I was deeply rooted as well as um, would, would be a beneficiary in neighborhoods like that improving. And I also understood the supply demand dynamics, Mm -hmm. um, which were grossly out of, out of whack. And what I mean by that is there were many more people like me, who would want to live in a place like a Harlem if -hmm. there was adequate housing. And the problem was that there was not a single building at the time that I bought my house that I would feel comfortable moving into as a renter um, because the business model for the buildings um, that were owned by long-term 
late first, second, or third generation ownership was, you know, a, a simple playbook, which is you own it for forever, you invest yes. as little as possible in it, and you live off the cash flow. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that as an economic model, but as these neighborhoods began to change, um, you know, I felt that you can acquire these assets at below what it would cost you to build it, you can invest in it, and you can attract not only people like me, but others who fit in the millennial category who are increasingly wanting to live closer to their jobs and not commute. They want to live in hipper neighborhoods, mm -hmm. um, and they weren't burdened by the thoughts of what a Harlem used to be or what mm. our parents or grandparents um, might have been told or experienced mm -hmm. or what people read or see on t television for what these neighborhoods were about. Got so it. that was the, the business model and sort of the advantage, if if I can say that there was one. I would have much rather had the advantage of having an uncle or a father or something in the business yeah. who could yeah. who could bring me in the business right out of college and teach me the ropes, but I, I right. didn't have that. So Yeah. I hear that. That that makes a lot of sense. And that's something um just for the benefit of our listeners that, you know, you kind of experience across the spectrum. So the position Jim would sit in is more of um almost the capital allocation standpoint where um you're making broad scale bets more coming in as a limited partner, um, am I understanding that part correctly? That is correct. And in, in the majority of what we do, um, we are investing in a team. Um, we're investing right. in a project. We're investing in a geographic neighborhood. We're investing in an asset type. So we have to have views on all of that to be able to generate the appropriate returns for our investors. Okay, exactly. And then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, um, where I sit um, at a, a company like a Tishman Spire or a general real estate development company in its pure form, I'm that 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 partner that you might you know allocate some funds to um, to go actually build and develop in a neighborhood. So there's kind of a lot of different areas where people can fit in in real estate. And I I think something that's so interesting about the industry is the the way it teaches you um, to both build um, and preserve capital, as well as the notion it gives you of ownership and the benefits of ownership. And I think that's something that um, all communities, particularly the, the black community, can benefit from understanding the ins and outs of how um, financial systems work generally, but specifically real estate. Because there is a lot of things I see in real estate are, are, are either wealth maximizing for a particular group of people or wealth preserving um, for a particular group of people. So um, not to beat real estate um, too much here, but how do you, how do you feel that um, people in even the Princeton community at any, at any level could be involved in real estate or what benefits of ownership do you think that they could get out of it? Um, I, I think that it's, it starts very simply. I was very fortunate that my parents instilled in me the ethos that before you do anything, you own your own abode. 
you go out and get your nice car or before you take your big trips, whatever the case may be, you own your house because then you can build equity over time and it will give you the freedom. Um, it will shield you from increasing rents, yada, yada, yada. Um, so my first advice would be to start there. Wherever you live, um, think and do research about where you want to buy within your city or your town or your suburb, um, and then do so. And that process in and of itself will educate you um, as to how you buy and and own property in this country, which is a process in and of itself. Um, Secondarily, um, in being thoughtful about where I bought, and by the way, um, at the time I was working on a trading desk, mm. and my peers on the desk told me that I was crazy for buying in Harlem in 1998. Oh, wow. And I said, you should <laughs> buy in Tribeca, or you should buy in Soho. You, you know, They knew how much money I, I was making, so they knew I, I at least had <laughs> enough money to afford to live there. Right. Um, but I made a strategic decision to be in Harlem. Again, based upon conversations and experiences of people who came before me, um, one of which being Garland Wood, who's the father of another friend of mine, Scott Wood, who Mm -hmm. lived on 105th and Manhattan Avenue and said that his partners at Goldman asked him the very same question. Mm. But when you fast forward to today and the value of my house, is probably I don't know tenfold what I pay for it um, wow. I don't think that the people who are in my class who bought elsewhere can say that about the investments that they made wherever they bought right. so um, being thoughtful about where you buy and, and why you buy also can be helpful if you want to be that involved in real estate. I mean, your, your personal house has some other intrinsic values because you live there and you utilize it. Right. Um, but So you don't look at it the same way you do a pure investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that's, a, that's certainly a start. As it goes to, yeah. to the industry itself, I'm a firm believer that in this country, one of the ways, one of the proven ways over time and over economic cycles to accumulate wealth. And there's a difference between accumulating wealth and getting rich. Accumulating wealth <laughs> and multi-generational wealth is by owning, by acquiring and owning real estate over the long term. Mm. And if you if you look at the Forbes list and you look at the origins of a lot of individuals on that list, wealth, and or how they have diversified their capital post becoming wealthy. Real mm. estate is a significant portion of that for a number of reasons. Um, and if you look at it from an after-tax basis, it's probably one of the more efficient um, investment opportunities that one has, particularly if you're going to hold it for the long term and you refinance um, mm. in a tax-free way. And that's the way that, that, particularly in this city, in New York City, a lot of individuals and families have accumulated large amounts of wealth um, by acquiring real estate, some by accident. 
You know, many people were yeah. business owners. They had a business in a building. They bought the building. Yeah. They expanded. They bought more buildings around them. And then you wake up 30 years later, and they're worth a couple hundred million dollars. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And and one thing that I really like that you said, um, predict, particularly coming from, from my end of the spectrum, is refinance. I think a lot of times, a lot of people think the only way to monetize in an investment is to sell it. And the thing with real estate is you're financing it against the value. So if the value doubles, you can essentially get a larger loan. You can take some of your own money out of it. You yourself have made some money, and you still own that asset. And I think a lot of times that's something that before you own a house or before you think about building your own wealth, um, people don't think about generally. And I think that's something that's very, very important that a lot of people at times can miss. Um, wow. So. Listen, not, not, only, not only are you able to refinance out and own it, but the, the biggest secret is you're not paying taxes on those dollars that you refinance out. Mm. If you sell an asset, you're paying capital gains taxes minimally, mm-hmm. um, which you know, is just not the most tax-efficient way to, to generate wealth. And um, I did a transaction in the mid 2000s mm-hmm. where we created affordable cooperatives in the Bronx um again going back to the theme of home ownership mm-hmm. and what i tried to impress upon the residents was um the they were buying their assets they were buying the apartments well below market um, mm-hmm. at an insider price and i was saying the day that you close you have embedded equity Mm. You can go get a loan against that and put your kids through college. You can mm. you can do a whole host of 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 things that you currently as a renter cannot do. Right. And I think that that message needs to be continued to be spread far and wide so that uh people can take advantage of of the benefits. 100%. 100% and I think yeah, I'm I, I'm in complete agreement with you on that. Um, so shifting gears to kind of our last topic as we wrap up here, what I always like to do, I really like talking to older people. No offense, but just generally, <laughs> I, I take extreme offense to that characterization. By the way, older than, older than myself. But go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. Go ahead. With more wisdom, um, because one thing I always realize is they have kind of a calming presence because they've lived through all the things that are stressing me out currently. And one thing I want to ask you is, so if you can think back to when you were, you know, starting starting out in the industry, starting out with your life, coming out of Princeton or coming out of business school, what were the things that kind of stressed you out and maybe fast forward a couple of years and how did those either end up working out or how did your perspective on those things change? So I'll answer that question by dividing my life into sort of before I became somewhat aware of how the world works and after. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Before I became somewhat aware, which I would probably say that it was 
pre-business school, so I went to business school in 1994, so I would say somewhere in the 92 to 94 time frame. Mm. Um, Prior to that, I was pretty fixated on getting a good job. Yep. Um, And again, coming out of Princeton, at the time that I went, uh, and I tell this somewhat as a joke, but not 100% as a joke. When I was there um, and when I went, I had the choice to do one of three things, pre-law, pre-med, or to be an engineer. Mm. My parents were not interested in having a conversation about me being a sociology major. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, you were going to major into something which is going to be productive for you economically once you graduate, right? We're not Mm. sending you to Princeton to solve the world problems, which I'll come yeah. back to in a second. Why, <laughs> yeah. why it's good that Princeton has changed in many ways so that people who go there today can do things like sociology. Plus, I had a, a ton of student loans to repay. Right. So um, that was my primary objective, right? I started my career at General Electric, which was a great job, great firm, uh, moved to Washington, D.C. Um, so I had the beginnings of a good career as an engineer. Mm-hmm. When I started to become aware <clears throat> that there were other um, avenues out there and other opportunities was when I would come home for home being to New Jersey and see some of my friends in New York City and some people who are on Wall Street to see that there are a plethora of careers out here, many of which compensate much more highly compensate you much more highly than what I was doing mm-hmm. and that valued people like me who had strong analytical skills math science and engineering and the like so mm-hmm. I had gotten a master's from Virginia Tech while I was at GE so I transitioned to Wall Street and then I got introduced to people who were traders and I said, wow, that's really cool. I like to do that. Mm-hmm. Then I decided to go to business school to do that. And I went to Kellogg and I graduated and ended up going to Solomon, Smith Barney. And, and then life went on from there. So in that period yeah. of time, uh-huh. I started to, when I graduated from Princeton, I really wasn't aware of what the world could hold, right, for mm-hmm. me. Um, I just said, I'm going to get a job, pay my loans, yada, yada. And my father worked at GE as well. So, you know, there was some pedigree there, and, and um, I went well. Yeah. Once I became somewhat aware of what the possibilities were, which business school also opened my eyes, um, I started to view the world a little bit differently to say, wow, there are a lot of ways that people in a capitalist society are doing very, very well. Right, And there are various and sundry uh, ways to do it. And private equity, venture capital, um, you know, investing in things mm-hmm. for yourself, for other people, is what I learned was a large way that large um, Wall Street firms made their money. Mm-hmm. So once I figured that out, I said wow, maybe I should try to do that. Yeah. And I was fortunate that I met people who who 
um, valued a, a couple of things, and this is uh, has been sort of my philosophy life. If you're relatively smart and intelligent, mm-hmm. and you partner that with diligence and hard work, the marriage of those two things is not extremely common. Mm-hmm. We may think it is, particularly mm-hmm. within the Princeton bubble, right? We think that right. everybody's smart and everybody works really hard. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's not the that's not generally the case out in the real world. Mm-hmm. So if you marry those two, most often than not, someone's going to notice that and will view you as valuable to their team, to the firm. And opportunities will find you. Got it. Because you are a smart, diligent person. And even if you don't know what it is that you know the firm wants you to do, mm-hmm. they believe that you can be taught because they're going to ta- teach you. And they believe that you're going to work hard. So yeah. when I hire people, uh, those are the traits I look for. For mm-hmm. are you smart? And are you going to work really hard? And with those right. two, I can mold you into whatever I need you to be. Um, I can teach you whatever I need you to know, and we'll be successful as a team. Mm. That's awesome. That's a, that certainly bodes well for um, a lot of people, I guess, who come out of kind of the Princeton bubble and are a little bit lost in terms of, you know, how is this thing all going to work out? But it sounds like, to your point, if you can be one of the rare birds who works hard and is pretty diligent and sharp, um, you got a shot. Yeah, listen, first of all, you don't have to worry. You're, you're in a great shop. So, so you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> but but as, an, as, an, as an example, um, when I got to Solomon Smith Barney, mm-hmm. uh, I said, no one is going to beat me into the office. Mm. It's just not on any given day. I will be the first one here and I'll be the best prepared. And I will get the highest grade on every test, whether it matters or not, Mm. because I want to be able to get on the best desk. I want to have my choice. So Mm. the the way that the street works is you have classes that come in. I said, I want to be number one in my class or certainly in the top two or three. And that was the ethos that that I bought to that. And I wanted to be really uh, wanted to stand out amongst my peers. Yeah. And it's that sort of a drive that I try to tell young people that when there's something that you want, um, you have to have that and you have to have, you have to be the best. And, you know, my parents always told me you have to be the best plus. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. You, you can't just be the best. You have to be the best plus. So you have to be so far mm-hmm. in, in a way better than everybody else, so that you know that it, it will go to you because they have no choice but to give it to you. Yeah. Um, and so that's some of the things that, that I've taken with me. I just want to go back to the one point though, where yes. I said where I made a comment about sociology. Yep. I think that I think I know that the changes that have occurred at Princeton. Um, both in terms of the percentage of people who um, are Pell eligible, who are admitted. Um, we were at an average of 7%. Now we're at 21 plus percent. Mm. The percentage of first time college um, 
or people who are first-time college matriculants of their family. Mm-hmm. Um, that percentage, I believe, um, well, I won't. I don't know the exact number, but I do know that it is about two to three times what it was historically. Um, And the fact that when you graduate, you do not have the burden of student loans. So Mm. it's all late. I think that that dramatically, dramatically changes the options for people who were there. Yeah. Um, Because who knows whether the cure for AIDS could have come out of my class mm-hmm. if people were not forced to make career decisions based upon economics or based mm-hmm. upon the fact that they had to make money right. to pay off loans or to do other things. Um, right. You know, perhaps someone could have chosen to do something different. So I think that those very, very fundamental changes um, have drastically changed um, the profile of Princeton and what it means to us um, as African-Americans because we are disproportionately um, advantaged by those changes. Right. So um, that's things like that are reasons why I am very involved with Princeton and will continue to do so. Um, because uh, if if I'm not a part of the solution, right? If Princeton is the exact same place as it was in 1988, the day that mm. I graduated, then part of the onus, I believe, is on me. Mm. Because I can't yeah. complain about it and say that it hasn't changed if my children are so lucky to go there and it's the same place without raising my hand, having a seat at the table, and effectuating said change. Wow. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's almost like the perfect way to end this thing. So, um, thank you so much for the time and your commitment to um, ABPA, your commitment to Princeton, what you've done for you know people like me, and what I'm sure you've done for countless countless others. And I really do think, honestly, um, not even just for the podcast, but just you know, person to person. Like I think, kind of the example you set. Um, for the younger people knowing what you've had to go through, um, what Princeton was in the 80s to what it is now, to what, you know, we're, we're going to make it be in the next, uh, you know, the next decade, it's inspiring. So, um, you know, on behalf of uh, me, myself, and, you know, everybody in ABPA, thank you so much for your commitment and um, for taking the time. Hey, you, you're very welcome. And if I can't do that, then something's very wrong with me. So, uh, that is... <laughs> I view that as as part of my job. Part of my job is to make sure that, that people like you um, can actually be better and greater than I am. And I'm not saying I'm great. But one other thing that I didn't mention, though, is that leadership is important. And we have been, I have been blessed to... Uh, have gotten to know President Tillman and now President Eisgruber, mm-hmm. um, as well as others on the board of trustees who happen to not be African American or look like us, mm-hmm. um, like the current chair of the board, Weezy Sams, mm-hmm. W. Wynn, mm-hmm. and there are Bob Mor- Morley, people like that who 
um, understand and understood that there were changes that um, should be made at Princeton. And without people like that support, I don't care if I jumped up and down and screamed, uh, change was not going to to come or it was going to come begrudgingly. And that's not the case. So uh, I do want to give credit to individuals like that in um, helping to push um, our agenda uh, along to the extent it is an agenda. And the agenda is just that uh, Princeton is a place where you can go uh, and change the trajectory of, of a kid's life, like mine. And everybody should have the the option and ability to take advantage of that um, if Princeton deems them worthy of admittance. So Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, much appreciated. You're very welcome. On behalf of uh, the Princeton ABPA podcast, um, this is Jaya Felucity with Jim Simmons. Thank you so much and signing out. All right, take care, Jim. Take care. Bye-bye.